The Art of Medicine, episode number 30, April 4th, 2021. Repairing Licensing and Credentialing, a discussion with Dr. Donnie Bell. Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and my guest today is Dr. Donnie Bell. Welcome, Dr. Bell. Thanks, Dr. Wilner. Thank you for having me. Dr. Bell, I invited you on the program because you wrote, you were co-author of a journal article that spoke to one of my kind of favorite topics, which is medical licensing and credentialing and the uh, waste therein. So first, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you came to write the article, and then uh, Tell us what you wrote. Thank you, Dr. Wilner. Uh, I'm Donnie Bell, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at New York City Health and Hospitals. I'm a practicing neurointerventional radiologist, and I also serve as uh, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer. And part of our roles and responsibilities is to oversee the medical staff and uh, credentialing of our practitioners. Great. So that's why I asked you to be on the program is credentialing and licensing is something that I ran into as a locum tenens physician, which I practiced for many years. I started in 1982. And since then, off and on, I've been doing locums. I wrote a book on it. And, you know, when you I wrote a chapter on the pros and cons and probably the biggest con about doing locums, the hardest thing is that every time you get a new position in a new state, you got to get a new state license. And even if you're well established, and this has just happened to me recently where I'm working here in uh, Memphis, Tennessee at the county hospital and our teaching program also includes the veterans hospital, literally across the street. It took me two years, not, not joking here, I'm not exaggerating. I think it was 23 months to get privileges so that I could start working across the street. And I'll mention that I don't have anything in my background, no drug dealing, no felonies, haven't had my license. I have actually up till now a perfect pristine record. And uh, even so the process can be so cumbersome that when you start telling the stories, you get riled up and you know you think it's like a Saturday Night Live routine. Oh, I sent the thing in and then they lost it and then I did it again. And then I had to get my fingerprints done you know, three times. And you know, it just goes on and on. It's like, how can this be? So you wrote an article about this. You were co-author in the, one of the, the JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. And I saw that, I said, oh, I gotta talk to this guy. So what did you say in your article? So unfortunately, uh, Andrew, your experience is uh, way too common. And even pre-pandemic, uh, from our own providers, as well as uh, going through the credentialing process myself, we noticed that there was a lot of room to improve the efficiency of the process, to say the least. And, and again, you know, the examples you just gave are very frequent in terms of uh, the proximity of facilities that our providers were trying to gain uh, credentialing and privilege to, privileging to could be literally right across the street and still require a number of redundant and inefficient processes 
in order to uh, provide care and, and give access to our patients. So that was the backdrop of our work in trying to improve our credentialing processes pre-pandemic and then COVID-19 hit. And initially our concerns were that we would need um, additional PPE, which we did, that we would need additional ventilators, which we did to, to a certain extent. But the most valuable resource that we found um, and, and, the, and the most uh, difficult to procure uh, was people. Uh, and, and part of the reason that that was difficult was because of all of the licensure and credentialing processes that are required in order to safely onboard clinicians, be they uh, physicians, uh, nurses, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, what have you. Now, um, fortunately, there are sort of emergency or disaster um, uh, uh, mechanisms that we, we utilize in order to, to meet the demand of uh, onboarding uh, hundreds, if not thousands of providers very, very quickly to take care of very, very crit critically ill patients, uh, which included uh, the, the, the state government allowing uh, practitioners with other state licenses to practice in the state of New York, as well as uh, as, a, as a healthcare system, us utilizing our disaster uh, credentialing and privileging uh, processes. But uh, e even, even with those um, uh, uh, mechanisms, it was still very challenging to onboard uh, very quickly a number of providers and, and it, and, and it brought in greater relief the difficulties with uh, credentialing and, and licensure uh, pre-pandemic. So I just want to step back for a minute, and I don't have any problem with physicians and other healthcare providers undergoing a credentialing process and a licensing process. Of course, we need to make sure that everybody's background is what they say it is, you know, and literally they're not convicted felons or, you know, and, or if they have, they've served their time and they're back at work, you know, but that process, um, the way it's done now has to be reproduced in every state and reproduced at every facility. And it's just not, it's not just a complaint of convenience. There are patients waiting to be treated, which became sort of acute in COVID. And there are physicians and other healthcare providers waiting to jump in and they can't. So people are literally suffering uh, because of the bureaucracy. And on the other hand, from the doctor's point of view, for example, I'm working now in Memphis in a full-time position in part <laughs> because it was very, very difficult to continue locums, always getting new credentialing because they want to, they want to review everything you've ever done. And, you know, and the older you get, you know, the more your, your CV gets longer. And they, so it became a big process. So it took nine months to get my Tennessee medical license. And so I started three months later than our agreed upon date because I did not have my license. So there were three months where I could not work. Now, patients could not be taken care of, but I did not have an income for three months because I was supposed to be working. Now, luckily I was able to rely on some of my other licenses, you know, and scramble around. Uh, but 
I mean, there's a real threat to physicians being able to move to a new facility, uh, you know, which is kind of part of life these days, you know, and I think part of the problem is, you know, go back 50 years, doctors got one license, stayed in one spot, right, practiced there for 40 years and then retired and we're done. So the need for multiple licenses wasn't that great or the need to multiple geographies weren't that mobile. And then of course, you'll, I, I, I don't wanna uh, skip telemedicine. Uh, I practice as a telemedicine physician and the way the law is written is you must have a license in your state and the state where the patient is wherever that is. So if you're going to be a telemedicine doc all over the country, you need 50 licenses. And there are docs I know who have 30 state licenses, you know, which is the bureaucracy involved and the cost and so on. So um, what did you propose to fix this problem? So uh, I think there are two components to that. Uh, the first is the licensure component. And so, you know, there are pros and cons to having um, a nationalized medical license. Uh, and, and so one of the major uh, pros is, speaks to what you just described, um, enabling providers to practice in, in multiple states, which is increasingly becoming more common due to telemedicine as, as you just described. And again, COVID, excel, you know, telemedicine was, um, becoming more prevalent before COVID and COVID only um, rapidly accelerated its adoption to, you know, levels that we'd never seen before. So, so, so certainly um, that, that's a need for the future and going forward. Um, and a major pro. A con might be uh, how do we then regulate the, the practice of medicine? And I think that's what the state's are concerned about if there's if there needs to be disciplinary action and there's only a federal or national level uh, regulatory agency, then that might slow the process down. So I think our uh, suggestion uh, uh, would be to expand on an institution that already exists, which, which is the Interstate Medical License Compact. And by doing so, you sort of get the best of both worlds, right? You 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 ease the process. Uh, by which physicians and other practitioners can obtain uh, licenses in other states, uh, while also maintaining the state regulatory um, authority uh, for the licenses. So I, I think that's sort of the best of both worlds and, and a practically uh, feasible approach to try to address the licensure issue. So I'm just going to for those who are unfamiliar, because I've explored this IMLC, what they do is they say for, for states who are members, and I think it's around 27 states now, they will accept a certain amount of your documents as having been verified by state A, so that when you apply to state B, they'll say, oh, state A already, already checked all these, those are okay. So you only have to do sort of parts two, three, four, and five and pay us and keep up your CME to get your state license. So it doesn't provide a common license and it's not reciprocity, but it, it allows for some common acceptance of uh, documentation that they vet 
a bunch, a, a good part of your application. So I agree. I think it's a step. Uh, I've become a fan of the federal license and I'm going to ask you, uh, well, I'll ask you now. So what happened in COVID was the state said, okay, you know, we need you. We'll just waive that requirement for now. You want to work in New York, your license in Pennsylvania, just go for it. And because the con of the argument is, well, what about, you know, the states overseeing all the care and all the disciplinary action and all the problems, you know, it's going to be easier to fix on a local level. That's the argument. So we've been doing it now for six months plus. What's the fallout? Well, I, I think I think the jury's still out there, uh, Andrew. So I, I think we're going to have to wait and, and, and see there. Okay, so we don't have enough information because I haven't read anything to say that, oh, there's been a lot of malpractice and patients aren't getting, you know, what they need and doctors, you know, are practicing outside their scope. I haven't seen one headline to suggest that the local state licensing is really necessary. And, and, and to that point and to piggyback there, you know, the, and we mentioned this in our, in our paper, the, the VA, um, they essentially have a national license. If you're licensed in a state, you can practice uh, within the, the VA health system uh, throughout the country. And so that could be another source for us to turn to see how regulatory issues are, are, are handled. But I, I think there is some precedent for uh, a, 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 a national license to some degree, whether it's through a compact or within an umbrella organization such as the VA, I think we're starting to see that, that it can work. And, and there may be regulatory issues that we have to iron out down the road. And maybe that will be another um, teaching point from COVID in this is, you know, what is sort of the legal fallout from, from implementing this sort of, uh, sort of essentially national license. Um, and, and hopefully we can learn quickly from that and, and use the challenges of COVID as an opportunity to, to modernize both the, the licensure and the credentialing processes. Right, so credentialing, was has that been relaxed also? Or how has that been dealt with? Yeah, so at, at New York City Health and Hospitals, we leverage what's known as uh, disaster privileges. And so they're a more streamlined version of the credentialing slash privileging process to get a provider safely into a hospital. Um, even with that, right, because licensure and credentialing, the processes themselves, in addition to being redundant, as you described, oftentimes are also outdated. They, they rely on outdated technologies such as um, silo databases or uh, faxes or emails. And so because of that, um, that, that process is, is th that further slows and delays the process. So I think those are gonna be things that we'll be looking to, to, to modernize and change in addition going forward. Well, I'm gonna go on record and, and say that not only do I think there should be a national medical license, I think there should be an international medical license. I do some medical volunteer work in the Philippines I can, am, cannot legally practice medicine in the Philippines. So I have to have a special certificate that says I'm 
it's I, they're waving it because I'm a volunteer and so on. And of course, all of Europe has all of its own rules. You know, and medicine's pretty unique. You know, we're all dealing with human beings that despite uh, some uh, very trivial outward appearances on the inside you know, are all pretty much the same. And so there is a lot of logic to allowing physicians who are trained to sort of practice, you know, where, wherever they happen to be and wherever the patients uh, happen to be. Now, from a practical point of view, how is this going to get done? You know, I think the states are kind of stubborn. They don't want to give up their kind of ownership of the state medical board and what they do. And of course, they get a lot of funding from, you know, medical license costs $500 a year. I calculated once there are a million physicians in the US, plus or minus. So at $500 a year for their licenses, you know, it's an average summer, less summer. We're talking about a half a billion dollars, a half a billion dollars in licensing. You want to cut medical costs? Hey, a half a billion dollars. You could cut that by, uh, I'm not sure about the percentage, but if you divide by 50, right, and just had one, <laughs> you know, be a lot less, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be one way to go. Even if you had to grow that, the staff of the federal one, Sounds like a simple way to go. So you mentioned in your article and repository that there ought to be, you know, a giant file with all of Dr. Wilner's, you know, diplomas and residency, you know, certificates and uh, any sanctions or whatever, so that anybody who wants to license me can just log in there and get it without each time, it, is there any, how do we make this happen? You know, the states kind of seem to have all the power. We're just sitting here, you know, at our desks. How, is there some organization that's gonna help us kind of achieve this worthwhile goal? Right, so, so I think as we mentioned in the paper, I think the federal government is probably uh, best positioned to accelerate the change here. Um, you know, each provider has to get a national practitioner identifier. I think that could be a great anchor for this sort of database. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's, that's which already exists that already exists. Right. So I think that's where, where the real driver, uh, has to start. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're also a payer. So I think when you, when you couple all of that, um, that's, that's a great place to start. Well, this has been pretty interesting, Donnie. Tell me, uh, is there anything else that, you know, our viewers should know or I should know about this medical licensing? Of course, everybody wants to know. So when COVID finally phases out, what's going to happen to these disaster plans? Are we just going to go back? You know, what about your institution? You're just going to go back to the way it was? Or are you going to make some changes? Yeah, yeah that's so that's typically how it works. Uh, you know, once once you're organization is outside of a declared emergency, then you can't leverage the disaster uh, processes and you go back to your um, sta standard operating procedure. So, I, I, but I think the silver lining here is, is that we have an opportunity with COVID in healthcare as with many other industries where, where a, a, a significant problem has been highlighted. And now we have technologies today that didn't exist, I don't know, five, 10, 20 years ago that can help us address 
those, those, those inefficiencies and those challenges in new ways. And I think COVID has enabled us to accelerate change in a way that we might not have otherwise been able to. And hopefully that, um, that, that holds true for the licensure and credentialing process as well, both in terms of how it's structured, um, in terms of being more of a national process for both licensure and credentialing, if, if that's via compacts or the like, um, in addition to making changes to the, uh, the data infrastructure that it sits on. So I, I, I hope that COVID accelerates uh, those things um, uh, and that we don't fully go back to uh, the prior uh, operating procedures. Dr. Bell, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Art of Medicine. I've really enjoyed talking to you about one of my favorite topics that hopefully uh, next time we talk about it will be uh, an improved. We're certainly gonna, <laughs> well, you've heard my input and whenever I have an opportunity, I'm, I'm pushing for it and I know you are too. So thank you very much for appearing on the program. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on the art of medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. Disclaimer. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The art of medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. Hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD. F-A-C-P-F-A-A-N. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe. www.andrewwilner.com